0: Hello, I hope you're all doing well. It is a chilly day here in Melbourne on the day of recording. Today I interview Karen Barrett and Karen is an accredited mental health social worker uh, and has extensive experience working in hospitals and other community settings uh, with a focus on working uh, with women and children in her private practice in Newcastle. Uh, Karen and I talk about some of the... I guess the the challenges starting private practice, moving from being a social worker in a community context or in another context to transitioning to a sole private practice worker. So, running a small business as well as providing therapy, the importance of supervision, um, maintaining your know, sort of your general health and well being, and trying to keep you know keep on top of uh, burnout and burnout risk. Uh, we know that with the work we do in the current climate there's increased stress we can have increase in complexity for our clients and uh, looking after ourselves is really important i hope you enjoy this interview with karen and you can find her on her website it's karenbarrett.com.au and there'll be a link uh, in the show notes to that as well and you can also find her at the empowered social worker um, facebook group i hope you enjoy this interview with karen Welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast. I'd like to start off by paying my respects to the um, lands of the um, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on which I'm recording this podcast on today and uh, pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Um, Today I'm interviewing Karen Barrett, who is freezing like me up in um, (laughs) Newcastle. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the podcast. Hi,
1: Marie. It's great to be here.
0: I always find it funny when I comment on the weather because I think if someone's listening to this in another season, they're going to be like, what's going on? But it feels relevant today.
1: It definitely is relevant today, yes.
0: (laughs) Uh, Could you share with the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you um, ended up in social work and what you're doing currently
1: yeah I've actually been reflecting a lot on that lately because um, I'm writing a few blog posts about how I got into social work and what led me there and I actually started out doing psychology when I left school <clears throat> pardon me and I think it was because when I was doing you know you finish school and you get all that career advice not one person mentioned social work to me and it was kind of just this given that I was good with people that was my strength so I'd be a psychologist. So there I was, naive and sweet and innocent, as you can be at 17, and off I went to university and started in psychology. So that was, um, gosh, over 25 years ago now, and I did my first year of psychology, and I really struggled. The, you know, the rats and stats thing just really got to me. I really struggled in that environment. I didn't think I was ever going to meet a real person and be able to work with people and support them. So. Yeah, I think they took on your to careers advisor and they suggested social work and just hearing the words, you know, social justice, community development, hearing more, I guess, of what I was thinking of when I went into psychology, just my eyes lit up and I thought, yeah, I think that's for me. So, yes, yeah, so I switched over to social work with my degree and graduated in 1998 and went straight into a major hospital. Um, environment where I'd done my final placement and started working as a social worker in intensive care and yeah that's where I started and I absolutely loved it that was you know from going into a career not really knowing where I was going to be I just loved that crisis trauma work that would be right at the I guess the gritty end of people's trauma and needs and vulnerability I felt really useful in that role
0: yeah Um, yeah And now you have gone
1: down the accreditation path? I have, yes. I've done a number of positions since my ICU position. So I've worked um, across a number of organisations, both government and non-gov. So I've worked as a witness assistance officer with the Department of Public Prosecutions. I've been a bereavement counsellor with sibling kids for families who experience the death of a baby or young child. And I've worked with um, the Department of Forensic Medicine as a group counselor there. And then my last role before going into private practice was with an acute mental health team. So I worked there for a number of years. And then, yeah, last said, I just went down the accreditation path of um, getting my accreditation as a mental health social worker. And I've been in private practice now for almost um, five years.
0: Wonderful. Do you have an area of interest or... a particular presentation that you tend to work more with or sort yeah of that you're that's kind of known same. for yeah for yeah. working. Right?
1: I think there's probably a couple I definitely women and children um is my client area of speciality I guess you would say and I work I do a lot of the majority of my work is with um victims crime um victims of crime counseling so that's where the majority of my referrals come from so working a lot with women and children who've been um, subjected to family and domestic violence, sexual assault. And I guess my other area of interest and speciality is probably working with people who have a complex or diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder and borderline personality disorder. So I do have a few clients, particularly young women who have those diagnoses and obviously have very complex presentations and developmental histories that, that I work with as well.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting, and it's such difficult work at that point, end when you're working with complex trauma. and
1: it's, Yeah, it's really difficult. It's difficult on a number of levels, isn't it? It's, sort of, it's really difficult personally, I think, trying to um, manage that level of trauma and that precarious trauma that comes along with that. But I think I also find it really difficult systematically and structurally that there just aren't supports and services in place for these clients and... I find that even though I'm not technically a social worker, I'm a therapist or counsellor in my private practice, I find myself doing a huge amount of advocacy work and case management work because I really feel that that's a lot of what these clients need in the community uh, along with that therapy and that counselling support.
0: How do you balance that? Because in, in private practice you're straddling that, um, that desire to want to help and challenge some of the systemic issues that you're noticing while being a therapist but also it's a sm- you're a small business owner and yeah. um you know we don't get paid for that time we don't no. get paid for sick leave for annual leave long service leave pd you got yeah. to put your own super away like it's it's uh, it's not as um, lucrative as you might think definitely how, not no how do you balance that desire to want to do that little bit more by while also setting boundaries that You can't do the work you love long-term if you go bankrupt. Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, I think that's an excellent question, Marie, and it's something that I struggle with every day. And I think, you know, it's something that I've been working on in my own supervision, the fact that I, yeah, I'll be honest, I'm really struggling with that at the moment, and it's actually got to the point where I've had to definitely close my uh, books and also limit the amount of people that I'm working with and sort of change my practice a little bit because... I found the emotional intensity and simply the time that it was taking from me was really starting to, yeah, affect me both in my work and outside of my work. Um, So I guess there's no easy answer to that. I think I'm working through that at the moment. I'm trying to work through that balance in how do I be a good clinician and a good business person and pay the bills while also, yeah, trying to stay healthy and well myself.
0: Yeah. So there's the business side, which maybe that's a different episode. But you mentioned that you talk about it with your supervisor. Yeah. How do you how do you use supervision and your support networks, or you know, what do you use actually to balance the intensity of your caseload yeah. and um, the isolation that can come with private practice?
1: Yeah. It's it is, isn't it? It's huge that isolation and I think coming from a really supportive Multidisciplinary team where I was working in the acute mental health team, I've noticed that really huge sense of isolation since working in private practice. And I still connect with those clients, with those colleagues that I worked with in in mental health. We often talk about the work that we're doing and how we're doing that and how we're maintaining um, our levels of health and wellbeing in that. I talk with other um, practitioners in private practice and we talk about you know what what we're experiencing what we're noticing and i guess support each other in an informal way but yeah i definitely use supervision to talk i guess to debrief and to offload on how i'm feeling but also to get that professional support in how do we keep doing this work what do we need to do what do I, what systems do i need to put in place and i think sometimes having that external accountability is really good for me because i will just tend to push myself and push myself and keep going but if someone else is there saying Hey, have you thought about this or do you think people are doing this a different way? I think it's you know, it's that reason that we have supervision, isn't it? To have that, I guess that self-reflection process brought out for us and to have someone else helping us stay accountable
0: to Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really important. I know there's been an increased um, I guess conversation. I'm hearing a lot more graduates talk about wanting to get into private practice and go yeah. down the accreditation route. I didn't even know it existed until like I applied, I was just yeah. about to apply for it, and I was like, "Oh, I, I meet this criteria." It just, and ha- it was never an intentional, an intentional goal. It was, um, I was just doing that work and working as a counselor anyway. Yeah. Um, but I think there was something in what you mentioned around being accountable and and supervision, and I, I think that might be if you're a more um, seasoned worker, you might have some more of those systems in place. But yeah. I think it can be really hard because it does doesn't seem to be many kind of counselling therapeutic roles for social workers in organisations, like it seems to still be reserved to psychologists. So it's either it feels like it's either you jump into the private practice if you want to do that psychotherapy-type work or it's kind of case management, mental health support.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think even though, I mean, I know, for instance, in my health service up in the Hunter region, we did used to have several social workers in community-based counselling positions. Which were extremely valued and important, but then those cost cutting measures come in. And so those positions have been drawn for quite a number of years now, obviously putting more pressure on um, clients and community members to find yeah. other sources of which often they can't afford. So, yeah, I think once those changes started happening with systems and processes within government positions, you're right, those, those positions were hardly there even for psychologists now, let alone social workers.
0: Yeah. And I'd like, to, I mean, I don't know how you found it, but I think if you're going straight from, and I don't even think psychology would be any different because it's still a, a, a you know, what is it? A three, one, two model or a five, one. So that's still six years. So even if you've done the same of your four-year degree or your bachelor and qualifying masters, and then your practice to then go into private practice, you almost need to you almost need like a business degree as well. Like it's a completely yeah. new yeah. skill set, and most of what you're doing to start off with has nothing to do with what you learned at school.
1: No, absolutely,
0: and, absolutely and, not. And I, I don't know how you found that, but I was just like, I'm just looking at the stacks of books that I have, and I'm like,
1: there's not one therapy book
0: here. It's all around like managing <laughs> like content, make, and yeah, branding, and you know, practice management, and yeah, totally. know, finances. And I've got notes from the bookkeeper here, and I'm like. Where's the therapy going? I
1: know. It's a completely foreign world, isn't it? It's like you, you're right. It's like learning a whole other degree, a whole other way of being and working. And I think you're right. I, I don't think it's an area. It's certainly not an area that I encourage new grads to go straight into. Absolutely not. I think you do need to be working within teams and organisations and systems that prepare you for some of that. And as you said, you know, even if you have done that, you still feel awfully unprepared when you start to do it. I had really great support from a colleague that I share an office space with. And I, I think without her, I would have been completely lost. I know there's some social workers now who really specialise in providing support to people who are looking to get their accreditation or to move into private practice. And I think that's great. I would definitely encourage you know, people thinking about it to look into some of those services because I think... You know, talking with people who've been there and done it is so helpful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's something I find um, there's a big difference in how people do that. Because if you're just working on your own, you might not need as much of the infrastructure, but it's still so yeah. important to, um, to recognise that you become a small business owner. And absolutely. it's not just... Um, unless you're working as a contractor for someone else but then there's yeah. still a little bit of you've got to manage your own finances in that way
1: yeah and you've got to um, be aware of all of those things it? but
0: it, it's just like you could be a really great cook but you need more than being a really great cook to open up a restaurant Yeah, absolutely. and there's other systems and regulations mm-hmm. and overarching frameworks and Oh, trying to get your head around I'm just, yeah, I'm just thinking I'm like when you said victims come like oh my god there's VCAT and tac yeah, and medicare yeah. and ndis and
1: so many different systems and it's so bizarre and... <laughs> because I originally left uh, government my government position because I wanted out of that I was sick to death of the systems and the processes and the bureaucracy and in some ways yes I've moved on from that in a clinical sense, in that I can run my own show more that way but I'm still linking all of those systems (laughs) and processes. I haven't escaped them at all. I'm just seeing them from a different perspective now. So, yeah, I think that was a bit of a wake-up call for
0: me. Oh, yeah. And for those who obviously can't see the recording because it's just audio, I'm literally crying with laughter out (laughs) of just like, yep, definitely. (laughs) So one of the, you've not pivoted, but one of the new offerings you're also um, running through your practice is supervision. Um, Can you tell me a bit more about, well, what, what, started that what, what yes. made you kind of want to offer that and and tell me more
1: yeah well, I, I, I mean i've done clinical supervision for social workers for a lot of my career so i've been in senior positions in, in in health where i've been supervising other workers and i've also always done a lot of student supervision so supervising social students when they're on their field placements during the degree and i just love that work it just gives me so much energy so much spark i love teaching and supporting um, new social workers or any social workers really I just I really was starting to see that that was where I was getting my spark in my practice that that was giving back to me so much more than my counselling work was so yeah I've really started to build that up over the last couple of years and so now I'm providing supervision to quite a number of social workers Um, And they range from new grads to more experienced workers. A lot of people who are starting in private practice I'm seeing um, supervision. And I guess supervision in that respect is kind of a crossover between the clinical supervision and also helping them and mentoring around some of that business work as well. Um, And I guess the other thing I'm noticing in my supervision work is the reality of systemic and structural burnout amongst our colleagues that... We're really struggling in a lot of the organizations and systems and processes that we need to work in the social work field. And it's taken a toll on all of us, I think. So that's a really big focus of a lot of my supervision work at the moment. Has
0: that been has that shifted at all? um, you know, with your experience now moving into private practice? Do you have you adjusted how you supervise, like seeing it, you know, when we do line management supervision, it's very different and there's sometimes we complain about organizational um yep. issues and, and management and sometimes that creeps in Yes. in private practice how do you balance uh, what are the differences in your um mm. in how you supervise and maybe your supervisees needs as they move into similar roles to now what you're doing
1: yeah i think It's a little bit different when you're not an employee of that organisation and that the supervisee is. So I think you can be a little bit more removed from that in being able to, I guess, supervise in a way that is purely there for the supervisee and therefore their clients, obviously. When I was a supervisor within health or government organisations, there was always that pressure from above in terms of. I would have line management duties or some sort of management or senior duties as well as the supervision. And it never worked well. It was always um, a really tough balance between those two. Whereas I think doing supervision from a private practice perspective is very different. But I think it's about, I do a really thorough, I guess, sort of intake assessment process with supervisees when they first come about why they're coming to supervision, what their goals are for supervision, what they need from supervision. And obviously that can change and we're checking on that as the, as the relationship progresses. But I think giving supervisees that power to say, well, this is what I need at the moment. This is what support I need from external supervision and mapping out a bit of a plan or structure from there.
0: Do you find, and I, I get really close to that line of, I'm like, oh, no, that seems a bit too counseling. you got to yeah. go and do that somewhere else. Like, yeah, And yeah. I reflect on a few sessions, supervision sessions I've had recently where I'm like, so, you know, you know, what came up for you? And we're talking about that, that person's kind of response and being um, family therapist trained, uh, that always comes into my practice now, even in supervision. Like, yeah. what's that like for you? What's that triggering? And then it's almost like we figure out a little bit and then it's like, okay, now we've got to pause there because you got to go figure that stuff out somewhere yes, else and yes. it's re- I find it really hard because I kind of want to get drawn in I'm like oh we've we've hit a nugget of wisdom or of, of something really interesting and curious but you got to go do that somewhere else
1: yeah it's really hard isn't it and it's you're right because we have the skills and the knowledge to to progress that don't we we could go down that path I think it's for me it's about being really clear with um the people that I supervise and I'm you know open honest transparent just as we are with clients look, like i can see this is coming up this is where the boundary might be let's talk about how far we'll go how far we won't go so just really talking through that that process and i guess giving those supervisors back um, some power and choice in terms of where we take that from yeah
0: yeah excellent do you have any advice on um you know, those looking for a supervisor, and a lot of people find that once they go into private practice or even are working towards accreditation, they want somebody who's already in that space. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In addition, how can they p- better prepare or what can they expect in supervision? So, line management supervision can be very different. Yeah. Are totally there any, any tips yeah. or advice on how that person, like what questions they can ask yeah. or how they can prepare or get the most out of that?
1: Yeah. I think it's really important to ask a potential supervisor about their experience and about their experience as a clinician and about their supervision style, so how they supervise, what models they use, or I guess what theory informs their supervision. So it's pretty much like a job interview, I think, when you're looking for a supervisor. You really need to nut that stuff out. I think the bottom line, though, you can ask all those questions and really it's about that relationship and whether you can build that rapport and that sense of trust with that person. So I'm always saying to people, look, come and meet me or let's have a Zoom session. Let's talk about some things. Ask me the questions that you need to ask. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if you don't think my style, and um, my knowledge and my experience is what you need, then that's fine. Let's keep looking elsewhere. Um, so I think I would definitely encourage you to have that face-to-face uh, conversation to see if you're going to gel and feel that that, um, I guess, the supervisor style is something that will work for you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what about in terms of um, preparing yourself for, you know, even having to think about what do you want to get out of it? Do you want to debrief? Do you want to learn a new skill? Do you want to be challenged? Do you want to bring in a recording of a client work? Like I think, I mean, I've just recently with my supervisees um, and my practice, we're doing a lot more deliberate practice. So we're focusing on, and that was my supervisor because I also talked to my supervisor about suggestions on how to be a supervisor because I think that's another skill set in itself.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And we've
0: been looking at deliberate practice, so just focusing on, not CBT or ACT or like a particular modality, but how do you um, seek feedback? How do you do your first session? How do you plan for termination? So actually sitting with one particular area and digging in. And I think it's made me now think, you know, how do I challenge my supervisees to to have a really good idea of what they actually want to get out of it? Do they want to case conceptualise? Do they want to practise a skill? how do we review if that's working and how do we measure that progress yeah absolutely. um because it's you're sitting in private practice often you're alone and no one else sees your work and if the client yeah. doesn't show up you don't know if you, they did right. it, it worked or they don't need you anymore or they didn't like it's even you know, do you have any advice on how people can reflect yeah. on what that they means. might want to get out of supervision yeah. not yeah. just kind of to tick a box for compliance yeah
1: really hard because I think for some people they may never have experienced good inverted form supervision so it can be really hard for them to know what supervision is I know I have a lot of new grads or young you know less experienced social workers coming to me and describing their supervision and what they have had has not been supervision it's been clearly line management or some sort of management process but it hasn't been professional for supervision I usually start off with a uh, sort of questionnaire that I give all of my supervisees, and what we run through a few questions about their work experiences, their experiences of supervision, how they're feeling in their current job, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, what they're struggling. with. So hopefully through that process they get a little bit of an idea, things sort of come to the fore. So it's a real narrative, it's a real discussion around what might be happening for them at the moment. And if they feel that they can't identify what it is, although most of them can, I can help them by pointing out some of the things that I think might be helpful. So I think it's sort of gonna go both ways. I think you need to come with some ideas, but I think the supervisor supervisor also needs to take some responsibility for pointing out, well, look, here are some things that I think might be really useful in the supervision process. What do you think about that? Here's the things we could work on. a bit of a structure or whatever. yeah a little bit um both from both directions i
0: think and what about handling um because we talk about it in more in a in a psychotherapy counseling context but kind of ruptures and repairs and i Mm. think you know it's a it's an interesting one because it is also a small world so your your reputation does follow you around yeah and i think in a professional workspace it really shows something to be able to say to your supervisor or supervisee this went prickly how do we fix it yeah, yeah. and that's a and it's a dual relation it it's a relationship that goes both ways not a absolutely. dual relation it can be if you see them in other context yeah, yeah what absolutely. what um what are your thoughts on on managing or navigating that
1: yeah look I think again From the outset, it has to be open, transparent, honest, accountable. Um, I'm pretty much a say-it-how-it-is kind of person, and I'm pretty clear about that from the go-get. So um, I talk about gently challenging. I think a lot of supervisees come to me quite traumatised, either from previous supervision relationships or current workplace organisational relationships. So I want to provide that supportive place for them to feel safe. But at the same time, I'm really clear about my obligations to them first and foremost as people and as professionals to their clients and their workplaces. So I think we, we talk about that, you know, pretty early on uh, just as we do with any sort of client worker relationship. That doesn't mean it always goes smoothly. But I think, yeah, I just have to come from that perspective of being open and honest and pointing out what it is that I see and asking
0: for reflection and discussion around that. Yeah, it's really interesting. All these ideas. (laughs) So we have uh, a lot of our listeners are graduates or early career social workers. If they've heard this and they're thinking, um, I'd like to get into private practice or down the accreditation pathway, or even have them questioning their supervision arrangements, what sorts of things can they can they do, can they reach out to you? Do you have anything?
1: Um, yeah, look, there? I'm happy. and You know, I think, you know, the Facebook group that I've started at the moment, Empowered Social Worker, I think it's a really great place to get sort of support and inspiration. We have over 250 social workers on there now, predominantly Australian, but also coming from other countries as well. And, you know, we're encouraging everyone to sort of put out their questions out there. I know there's a few professional social work groups on Facebook, Um, So I'd encourage them to look at those as well and just, you know, ask those questions. I think looking for support and guidance from those that they trust within the profession, whether that's their teachers, their lecturers, the people, their supervisors on placement, colleagues that they might have or friends, and asking, you know, what they're doing and how they're working and how they're coping. And I think reaching out for that extra support through supervision um, if that's what they think might be able to support them. Um, I think, in regards to private practice, as we said, I think it's not something for a new grad to be looking into. I would definitely encourage them to be looking at working within a team environment, at least for a couple of years, to get that experience in a hopefully supportive and organised um, organisation that gives them the space and the time to help build their skills, their knowledge. And learn from others. I think, you know, that's one of the big things that I noticed when I was in Newfoundland, particularly working in a hospital environment where I had so many other social workers I could learn from. Um, Yeah, they're not always great experiences, but even the ones that sting can be great learning opportunities and I think we need to be doing that. We owe that to ourselves as individuals and professionals, but we owe that to our clients as well, that we need to be getting the best experiences and the most experience we can before we move into that
0: more isolating area. Of yeah, and I was actually thinking, as you said, that you partly answered my question because I think we can, sometimes people maybe are under the impression that if I do X, Y, Z, then it's good and I'm done and I can go into the work and that's just the start yeah, because absolutely. that's the minimum basic baseline requirement
1: yeah. and then
0: you step into that role and you're at the... You know, you're at the at the bottom end of your learning journey. Like you've just, and, and I think that can be overwhelming for some people. I've just done this many years of study, and I've done this, and I was like, and that's the bare minimum you need to now yeah. step into that role. And yeah. it's an ongoing um, learning journey, uh, personal journey, uh, modalities, presentations, yes. increasing in complexity. Yes. Um, and you could you could you could become a um, yeah i don't like to say addicted because that sounds awful but it can be a never-ending desire to
1: upskill oh totally yeah, and, you, could. And you I, could do that forever and, yeah
0: and i get really like i'm a bright and shiny object person I'm like oh i'd love to do that Ooh, training that oh cool. and that yeah. training and then there's this and and it's like no, i have to rein it in and sometimes yeah. having a niche i think can be helpful because
1: absolutely you know, yeah to put some guidelines around
0: that i've ran your training you know it's just like
1: yeah i could learn
0: play therapy or art therapy but i I tend not to work with under 15 so that's easier not to just it's interesting and i can pull in a few skills but then i focus on this or yeah i tend not to do sort of prenatal antenatal care so that rules out those pds i think it's nice to have
1: a direction because yeah and i think we can do that these days i think we can we can choose those sort of specialities to focus on and that's not to say you're locked in in those as well because i've worked across lots of different areas and i think you know, that's a great thing about our degree, that we can be flexible and do so many different things. Yeah. And I think the joy of, um you know, there's also the, the other side to that coin of being a new grad too, Marie, and that, you know, I say to a lot of new grads who come to me for supervision, you know, and they have such high expectations of themselves and I should be doing this and I should know this and they feel that they should know it all. They put such pressure on themselves. And I'm always reiterating to them that you're still learning, you're still new, it's okay to... A make mistakes and B not know something, that, you know I can do this in only 23 years and piece and stuff I don't know, and that that's okay. Um, and giving yourself permission to feel that way and to say that too, I think can be really liberating. Instead of feeling like well I've got that degree under my belt now I should know it all and be able to go out there and the world. Yeah,
0: which it's it's almost the exact opposite. It's
1: yeah.
0: Um the, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know <laughs> and the more complex things become. Yeah. And just when you think you've you've nailed one thing, it's just another layer to look at and
1: well, and think, that's we're working with people, aren't we? In communities, yeah. it's never gonna be, you know, it's not a I remember my mother-in-law once talking about how I took so long to mark assignments as an engineer. <laughs> so of course there's a right and a wrong in her world, whereas for us. It's so multifaceted, it's not black and white, it can be, you know, it takes time and it's intricate and it's emotional, and there's so many different layers. So, yeah, yeah. that should be tough.
0: <laughs> And I feel like sometimes I have to rein it in because sometimes when someone's making a decision, often around, you um, know, like a discipline, or you know, I work a lot with teachers and I'll talk about punishment, and a part of me wants to be like, okay, so what does that trigger for you? Yeah. <laughs> tell me more about why you think that's appropriate. It's like, hmm. and I can just almost hear their eyes roll back. <laughs> okay. And I think that's, How does that make it and it's not unique to social work, but I no. think it's a big um, focus of our degree when we start off is that systemic thinking. And so it's yeah. really hard to just focus on a very traditional CBT symptom management when we're like, there are bigger systemic issues and there's Absolutely. workplace culture and family culture and uh, community and different um, intersectionalities of, yeah. of culture, religion, sexuality, gender that Absolutely. we can't ignore.
1: And that's um, strength, I think, as a profession. That's the fact that we look at those things, that yeah. we take that into account, that we allow for that is one of our unique selling points, I think, because yeah. a lot of other professions in this area do not do that. We're the ones who do that.
0: And I think it does speak for itself. Like I do have a lot of um, of clients I work with or who come to the practice because we, over, we avert some of that in the discussion. Yeah. I might say something along the lines of, you know, I don't know if this is relevant, but I've noticed that, you know, you tend not to X, Y, Z, or, you know, it, this may or may not be relevant, but you know, especially with COVID, you know, one example, and I hate having to talk about it, but it's sort of, you know, if I have clients who are of an Asian background, I might say, look, I just want to check in. How has your experience been with the current conditions around increased racial tensions? Is that something that's impacted you? It may, if it doesn't, we don't have to talk about it, but I just wanted to flag that in the back of my mind, that's come up as something that could be contributing to your distress. Is it worth exploring? And I think people feel really contained um, and like that, we can talk about those complexities.
1: Definitely, definitely, absolutely.
0: And we don't have to have the answer or have the same experience, but no. naming it is a really good
1: opening account. conversation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
0: So, where can people find you if they want to? So people can find learn more.
1: me. I have my website, so that's dot Yep. And The Empowered Social Worker is on Facebook. So if you search in Facebook The Empowered Social Worker, it's a private closed group, so anyone can ask to join that. And I'm the administrator, but um, I will click you to for that. And I'm also on uh, Instagram as The Empowered Social Worker as well. So, yeah.
0: Wonderful. And um, if you're offering supervision or mental health pathway, what are the sorts of um, areas that people can... Connect with you
1: over. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So I offer supervision. So I, uh, if you're in sort of the Newcastle Hunter region, I can do face to face. I also offer Skype uh, supervision for those in other areas. And yeah, I guess my supervision speciality is definitely helping people who are experiencing workplace uh, either trauma, burnout, stress, looking at your career from a holistic perspective and offering that support around managing that and surviving that and thriving in that, I think, is really important. Uh, but, yeah, working with people from all um, experience levels, so whether that's in the grads or right up to more
0: experienced social sure workers. Excellent. And I do encourage people, I know we're a bit zoomed out, especially um, us here in Melbourne, and I think Sydney's not going to be far off feeling that pain, but I think doing supervision online, it, it doesn't feel as taxing as therapy so i know yeah. i've got two supervisors and i've only ever met them once in person and it was yeah, wow the connection was still so strong and yeah. so there's such an intimate relationship so i and i think people can use um the new comfort and familiarity with technology to really reach supervisors um that are not local interstate even internationally Absolutely. if there's a particular skill set yeah. or, or training you want to do um, and it, it still can be really valuable because you're not relying on the same tiny cues, it's a little bit more upfront than yeah, I th- maybe I think therapy. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I so it's
1: found it that way.
0: Like I, I hated doing therapy online on both sides. It wasn't as natural. Some people don't mind it, but um supervision just felt very different. So I yeah. encourage people not to be deterred by someone not living in their area.
1: Yeah, I absolutely um, agree.
0: Yeah. And it also means you can squeeze more into your work time. Um, yeah. I know travel time, um, that kind of thing
1: can be. Yeah, absolutely. I actually I supervise a, a couple of people via Zoom on in, who live in my local area, but it enables them to actually access supervision because it cuts out all their travel time for them. So yeah, that can be definitely helpful as well.
0: And sometimes it can be what the helps your organisation with cost recovery. Exactly. Um, you know, not having to travel time or work, or they might say you can do it on work time, but you pay for it. Like there's ways. Absolutely. Um, because I think it's really important to have that, that supervision. Uh, well, absolutely.
1: I think it's important for, as I said, for us, for from a professional and personal perspective. I think you know, I know that that brings me that moment of relief in my month that just I've got someone else that's supporting me in this, and it just feels, yeah. Apart from being a professional requirement, it feels yeah, comforting and good and supportive. So yeah, wouldn't be without it.
0: No. And I think the requirement is very minimal. I think I'd do that, I'd yes. do that in two months' work. Yes. I think 10 hours is. I, do, I would do that within two months. Um, yeah, that's right. But it's. I think it's part of your um, duty of care, I think.
1: Absolutely. And,
0: and that's a really good way to sell it to some people. Is I know you want to do really good work and you want to do it for a long time and you do good work better for longer, um, yeah. more effective if you have the right support system.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, our duty of care to ourselves and our families as well is we want to do this work
0: yeah. and stay in this work. Wonderful. Thanks so much for talking. There's so many things we could have talked about in that private practice space, but I think the burnout and the focus on supervision is really important.
1: Yeah, thanks, Mary.
0: Thanks, Karen. Thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed this episode if you'd like to support the podcast please leave a rating and a review so other people can find it uh, share it with any social workers or other practitioners who might find it helpful you can hop on over to the Facebook group the Inside Social Work Facebook group Uh, I pop in there sometimes and uh, we have uh, discussions and I offer discounts to some training events and early bird specials and that kind of thing that I run out of my practice, uh, the Therapy Hub here in Melbourne. And uh, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, all those places if you want to reach out. i uh, love to hear your social work stories. And if you have a topic that you're interested in hearing more about or something you'd like to share, feel free to get in touch. I love hearing from listeners about their experiences in social work and uh, how they find in the podcast because this is really um, just a small platform to connect people with each other to hear different stories that are relatable and give you a sense of connection and community even if we're all far apart i think hearing from other practitioners in the field uh, can be really rewarding so thank you for listening and i'd love to hear from you so feel free to reach out have a lovely day